0: It is so, so good to be together, to be gathered, both in the lobby and on Zoom and in Heart. Um, we, are, are, My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And we are going through this refresh series. And uh, the thing about refreshing is that there are these old ancient rhythms uh, that kind of need a little bit of a reboot. And uh, we've been looking at ways we engage with God. We've been looking at how a Sunday morning operates. And this morning we are going to look at this sermon. Uh, so how, how cool. Right now I'm preaching and I'm going to refresh right now while I was preaching. I was gonna do a little rap or a dance or something incredible, but I couldn't, I'm not that creative, but I am going to refresh the sermon. And uh, what's so great about this is that because of COVID, I feel like I have watched so many other church services. Give me a little raise your hand. I'm not going to judge you, but have you kind of been like checking out other churches, seeing, hey, what's, what's God doing in other little places? And uh, you're watching other church services, you're listening to other sermons, and you're just realizing, man, what God is doing all over Zoom is so incredible. And uh, what I found is I'm watching other church services. And I'm watching other sermons. Uh, you know, I'm kind of fast forwarding here and there. Um, sometimes I just, I just listen. I'm like, oh, my heart is just blowing up and so excited about what is happening. Um, but there's something really different and unique about going and kind of peeking in on a church service here and there and about gathering as a church, as a Marin Covenant church, the gathered people of Marin Covenant and to say, God, what do you have for us? And what's interesting about this sermon, the the actual task of sermons for myself, for Jeff, for all of our preaching pastors, when we come here, we're not trying to think, man, what is the most incredible uh, thing that we can tell you? What is the most unique Bible interpretation that we can say to knock your socks off? What is something that is just going to hit someone across the teeth and you're going to be like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about? Our posture is that we have this unique gift, this unique calling to be. Prophets to share what we feel like God has put on our heart through the word to our unique grouping of people, to Marin Covenant Church. Now, what God is doing all over the place is really unique and special, but when we come to this task of preaching, it isn't to the world, it isn't to America, it isn't even to California or even Marin, it's to Marin Covenant Church. And so as I think about gathering and preparing for a message. That is what is happening. I am thinking, I'm praying about you. I'm thinking, God, what do you have to say to Chad and to Lane and to Stephanie and Chuck and to Javier and especially to you, Amanda? This is for you. I'm just kidding. So that's our morning. I to think about, God, this is a sermon for our people for this time. And oh, it's easy to want to be clever, to be funny, to say something that's uh, challenging or going to make me feel better, but I love uh, this this professor's name is Joel Beeke, and he wrote this incredible book about reformed preaching, and he has this quote that I think helps for me shape and and point what my task is, what our past, our task as as preachers are. Um, as we prepare for service. Uh, So this is, this quote says, the church today desperately needs preachers whose private prayers season their pulpit messages and who continually remind themselves that awakening, heart-engaging, life-transforming preaching does not depend on ministerial eloquence, self-generated passion, or even the powers of persuasion, but on the sovereign good pleasure of God operating through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that really is my prayer and our prayer that as we come, we gather, we've been praying all week for you that you would encounter the word of God in a brand new and fresh way. And so what I thought would be kind of fun to do this morning as we think about how do we refresh the sermon, is I thought it'd be fun to give you an inside peek to see how in the world a sermon is put together. And then that way you can actually settle in and be along for the ride. And so the deal is almost all sermons share a similar pattern. Now, patterns are double-edged swords. And this is what I mean by that. We love patterns, but sometimes patterns can be really um, boring as well. When you think about the story arc, right? There's a beginning, there's a climax, there's a resolution, there's a natural arc that happens uh, to a story. Well, if you think of a TED Talk or even church services, um, if you think of music, you know, G, C, D, throw in E minor and you think you're all sassy, right? There's these certain like, Arcs that happen. And what happens is, if you, as you get used to those arcs, you know what's happening, which means you can actually engage in a whole new. Way I love uh, back when I went to church, uh, went to a Presbyterian church, and they gave you an order of worship. And some people hated the order of worship, but I loved it because I knew, oh, this is what's happening next. This is what's happening next. And so I knew where to engage. I knew how to emotionally temper myself throughout the throughout the morning. And uh, and so a sermon is the same way. There's this natural arc that happens. And so I wanted to walk with you the most basic, um, the most basic format of a sermon, so you know how to engage. But before I did, I want I want to share one more quote. This is from uh, Tim Kelly who also is an amazing preacher. And he says this, while the difference between a bad sermon and a good sermon is mainly the responsibility of the preacher, the difference between a good preacher, between good preaching and great preaching lies mainly in the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the listener, as well as the preacher. And so this morning as we enter and engage god's word that is my prayer that we would not just go that's a great sermon but we would be people both as listener and as preacher we would engage the word through the holy spirit and that he would have his way with us so before we do that let's pray if you'd be willing to put your hands like this put them open as a posture to receive that all that god might have in us and through us this morning let's pray heavenly father and our gracious god we love you so much We're so thankful that we have the ability to gather for all the uh, technology that allows us to happen in creative ways and for people in the lobby and just to be together to worship you. And now as we gather around your word, which Christians have been doing for 2000 years, longing to hear afresh what you have to say to us individually and corporately, God, we pray that we would not miss it. We pray that we'd be open to any encouragement, any challenge, any invitation that you may have for us. May we not leave here the same, but may we be transformed by your word and may be for your glory. Amen and amen. Well, if you want to know how most sermons begin, you know they begin with something called a hook. And a hook is an opening illustration. Now, all the kids, you know who this is? This is a little bit of a baby shark, Right, baby, shark, shark, shark. Well, I could not get this song out of my head, but this is how I got here. Last week, Danny preached an amazing sermon. She preached an amazing sermon and she started with The Farmer and the Dell. Remember The Farmer and the Dell? Well, she's telling the story about The Farmer and the Dell and I'm so in, all of a sudden I'm thinking about my childhood and I'm thinking about Ring Around the Roses and I'm wondering what kind of songs do kids think now? And before I know it, I'm singing Baby Shark. And my mind happened that fast. Like, And before Danny could even tell what the opening illustration was about. I almost missed what Adele was because I was singing Baby Shark in my head. And it happens all the time. I can't tell you the amount of times I'll talk with people and they'll be like, Hey, I heard you're going to counseling. Well, that was an opening illustration. That wasn't the point of my sermon. It was just a little hook to to draw you in to say something. Or, Man, the, the, Jeff, we talked about the, the national anthem and everyone gets spun out about that. No, these are opening stories. They're like the very beginning teasing points to get our brains pointed towards something. And you see like when Jesus would do this, when you tell a parable, imagine Jesus begins his parable. And he says, so there's a farmer and he's going out to sow his seed. And you're like, oh, farmers, they have such big hands. That's so cool. And all of a sudden you forget the whole rest of the story. Or Jesus begins to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, so there's this man walking from the road to Jerusalem to Jericho. And you're like, I love that road. There's a good in and out burger on the way of that road, Right. That a hook is just simply to begin to get you thinking. And if you're like me, it's easy to go squirrel and be distracted and miss the whole thing. So just know those opening illustrations is just a way to warm you up. It, it, you want to get to the end of the illustration to find out where we're going. And so once you have a hook, once you kind of get everyone all warmed up and you're all in the same place and you have some sort of lighthearted story, then you are ready to get after it. And what's fun is these are all rhymes. So you start with the hook and then you begin with the book. And the book is actually looking at scripture. Scripture is the lens that we use to make sense of the world, to make sense of ourselves, to be empowered by God, to know what we are called to do. And I love this uh, in, our, in, our, in our covenant uh, denomination, we have an affirmation about the centrality of the word of God. And this is part of that affirmation. It says, we affirm the centrality of the word of God. We believe that the Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. The dynamic transforming power of the word of God directs the church and the life of each Christian. So a sermon would not be a sermon unless it was rooted firmly in the word of God. So you have something clever that kind of gets people on board. And then you take a look at the book. What does God's word actually say? And this morning, we're going to look at a very, um, one of my favorite uh, parables of Jesus, the parable of the lost son. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 11, starting, I mean, Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and let's read this together. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to the citizens of the country who sent him, on, sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods in which the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have, good, have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against you. And against, sorry, against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Ah, oh, what a beautiful, beautiful story. Give me a little snaps if you like the, the story of the prodigal son. I think it is such a beautiful, beautiful picture. So what happens is you have a hook. You say something kind of clever to get you engaged. Then you read from the book, trusting that God is going to speak to you. And then you look. And what look is is look is that you we want to grow in our knowledge and appreciation of the Word. And so this is the time where, where we as pastors kind of find creative and uh, and little fun nuggets so that you can understand God's Word better. You understand the culture behind the Scriptures better. So that when you read Scriptures on your own, you're like, oh, that's what that means. That's what that means. And you find more and more affection and appreciation. And so I have a couple of fun nuggets that I wanted to share with you about my all-time favorite uh, prodigal, uh, sorry, my all-time favorite parable. One is N.T. Wright. He doesn't call this the, the story of the prodigal son. He says that this is the prodigal. I mean, this is the parable of the running father. Isn't that such a beautiful picture that the focus is on God, but it's the posture of God running to meet his son. Well, what's interesting about this is we we all know that when, um, when, when the son says to his father, hey, I'd like my share of my property and I'd like to go, that basically he was telling his dad to drop dead. And as a younger son, he he would get a third of his holdings. But in order to get a third of his holdings, he actually had to go and he had to sell his holdings to someone who would give him money, which meant the father and the older brother over and over again would see some other family using their land, right? And so there's three shames that I just wanted to point out as we take a look at the word of God. The first is the shame of the family. When the the younger son said, I want my inheritance now. He was shaming his family. All the wisdom of the day said, you do not give away your inheritance until you die. It puts your family at jeopardy. If he sells his property, right, it shames the family in front of everybody while somebody else is working this land that that has been passed on from their family over and over and over again. And what's funny is I think the shame of the family, the youngest son could care less about, right? He said, give me my money. He cashed out and he left and he left his family sitting in this shame. The second shame was the shame that he ended up putting on himself, right? He goes, he takes all his money, he goes to a distant land and he lives a wild and crazy life, which is super, super fun. But he's still a good Jewish boy at heart. And so when he runs out of money and he can't find a job and the only job that he can find is feeding pigs, he knows even in the depth of his being, he may not have felt the shame of his family, but he for sure would understand the shame of feeding pigs, of living with pigs, of longing for the food Of pigs, so there's the shame of the family that happened, and then there's the shame that he experienced himself. And we love this story because at one point, right, the son turns. He comes to his senses and he comes back to the father. But the third shame is is even more wild. The third shame is the shame of the father, because you see, for the the father to go and be waiting at the edge of his property, waiting for his son to come home, and then to see his son. And then to run after a son is not what a dignified, noble Jewish man does. A noble Jewish man would sit at home. Some would tell him his son was coming. He would sit in his big dad chair and the son would come and he would beg for forgiveness. And there'd be some way to maybe, maybe be back in relationship. But the father shames himself by extravagantly running after a son to express his love and affection and grace. Oh, so good. So those are the three shames. So when you're taken, you have a hook, and then you have a book, and then you have a look, right? The look is looking. So the hope of those three little nuggets, right? And because we have a limited amount of time, uh, there's way deeper things to talk about. But there, there, there's your little look. And then the final part of the sermon is this, the took. You see, when we enter, the, when we encounter the word of God, we actually want the word of God to mold us and to shape us and to change us. And so finally, at the end, we, we, we don't want to just get sidelined by something really distracting or interesting or go, oh, I never knew that about Greek culture or Jewish culture, or I didn't know if uh, the son had to sell his, his land or whatever. Those things are all really great. But the, the money comes when it comes to the took. And here's the took. In all of Jesus' teaching, usually you find either an encouragement or a challenge or an invitation most of us love the, the encouragement and invitation piece, right? When Jesus uh, did the Beatitudes and blessed are the poor, and he's speaking to this marginalized group of, of poor people on the side of a hill, like, yes, we are seen by God, right? When he says um, that he's, there's going to be a house for you in heaven, right? There's these encouragements that God longs to have intimacy with us. But then he also has these challenges where he puts the thumb. He directly just puts the thumb in the eye of people. When the rich young ruler says, I want to spend eternity with you. and, and, And Jesus says, well, all right, then follow my commands. And he says, I already did them. He's like, well, then we're going all the way and you need to sell everything that you have. So Jesus does these challenges. And then sometimes he does a gentle invitation, right? Come to me, all you who are weary. So when you look at Jesus' teachings, there's always an encouragement and a challenge and an invitation, And so I just want to go through three of these because maybe one of these uh, resonates with you. Maybe one of these resonates with you. And first is the encouragement. And as Christians, as people who have come to know Christ, most of us in some way or another can identify with the prodigal son. Most of us at some point in our life have recognized that we have shamed God and that we have shamed ourselves. And what's so incredible about the story is because even when we make the slight turn towards the family of God, towards the household of God, God shames himself and runs after us and extends extravagant love, extravagant grace. And there is no distance too far from God's love. And so no matter where you are, no matter what's been going on in your life, the product, the story of the running father is for you, that this encouragement is for you. I love that. I could sit on that all day. But it wouldn't be a fun sermon if we didn't do a challenge. So let's let's look at the challenge. Now, here's a quick thing. I have three things I want to share with you about a challenge. Because this is what I found. One, when we think about the challenges of Jesus' teaching, one, we think, how is this going to challenge others? Everybody always wants the word of God to challenge other people. Everyone's always standing behind Jesus going, yeah, Jesus, what are you going to say to them? But that's not what's going on here. The second thing that we see about challenges, we always want challenges to clarify our tribe, right? The world is so crazy. We don't know where we fit in. We don't know where the church fits in. You don't know if I'm with you or not with you. And so you're always looking for little nuggets in the sermon to say, are you part of my tribe? And if I challenge the right people, well, then I know I'm with you. But if I challenge you, then I'm not with you and it causes conflict. But here's the deal. The challenge that Jesus has is not for other people. It's not to make you feel better about your tribe. The challenge is actually for you. And because that's so dangerous to point the finger and say, this challenge is for you, we often say, hey, the challenge is for us, which is we are all on this journey towards Christ. And so when we see the the challenge that God has for us, we recognize it is for us. So here's the challenge that I want to encourage you slash us. So I'm going to disagree with N.T. Wright. (laughs) <laughs> this puts me in dangerous waters, but I'm gonna disagree with him. He says that this is the parable of the running father, but I think that this is the parable of the older brother. This isn't the parable about who God is. This isn't even a parable about how much he loves sinners, but it's, it is a direct challenge to the older brother. You see in Luke chapter 15, the very beginning of this whole chapter, it says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees said to the teachers of the law, this man welcomes sinners, and eats with them. You see everyone was trying to figure out who Jesus was, if Jesus was with them or not. And Jesus was with sinners and tax collectors and with Pharisees, people who loved the word of God. And they were trying to figure out Jesus, what team are you on? And he tells this parable for the sake of the Pharisees. And it says this in verse 28. So the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who had squandered your property and prostitutes himself comes home, you kill the fatted calf, calf for him. And so here's my gentle challenge for you and for us. What if we at Marin Covenant Church are not actually the prodigal son or the older brother, but we are taking on the mantle of the father, which means we are a church that is posturing ourselves in Marin to be open and available for every spiritually hungry person. Every spiritually hungry person in Marin County sees Marin Covenant as a church that has its doors wide open. And every single one of us who call this church our home, we are sitting at the edge of our property waiting Desperately for any sign for somebody, anybody is warm towards Christ. And no matter who they are, no matter what background they are, no matter who they're voting for, no matter their ethnicity, how much money they make, whatever their problem is, how bad their breath is, none of that matters because they are warm towards Christ. And so we are at the edge of our property and we are going to run after them with all of our being. And I think it's so scary how fast we move from the prodigal son to the older brother. Because what's happening is God is meeting people in Marin County. God is using our church to actually meet people and encounter people. And it's making some of us very uncomfortable because some of the people who are coming to know Christ are very different from who I want to be around as a church, who I thought our church was or should be. And all of a sudden we're growing and being this really broad and diverse church. And it's causing a lot of fear. And I think Jesus tells this parable to remind the older brother, hey man, you're you're the older brother. Everything I have is yours, but we should be celebrating. We should be excited that this brother of yours was lost and is now coming home. And so the deal is if we are going to be a diverse group of people, every single person in Marin who is spiritually hungry, no matter your background, no matter your political affiliation, how much money you have or how bad your breath is, no matter any of those things, if you are going to come and move towards Christ, then this is your home. And I was telling somebody the other day, but I think this helps out. It's like, if, I move, if I'm going to go to Chicago, Chicago is the destination. And from California, it's easy. You just go east. But someone from New York wants to go to Chicago. They're going to go west, which means their directions look very different. But the destination is the same. And so maybe as Marin Covenant Church, we can more and more take on the posture of the prodigal, I mean, of the father, of the running father to make space for any and all people who want to know Christ. And to recognize that the challenges are not for the person to our right, not to the person to our left. It's not for me to have your back and put someone else in their place. The challenge is for you to move towards Christ, for you to submit more and more of your life to Christ. And what sort of great conversations do we get to have when I'm trying to move towards Christ and I'm willing to, God convicts me of this sin, but God's doing something different in you. And we get to share those things as we journey towards Christ. All right, so there's an the encouragement for the wayward son. There's the challenge for us older brothers, but then there's this gentle invitation because even as the older brother, if I was a dad, I would be so upset. And sometimes as a pastor, I get so frustrated, but God is so generous. In verse 31, it says this, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and he is found i love it god's posture even towards the rebellious older brothers you've always been with me and may we not forget those of us who have been around the church a long time this is our place this is our home god is always with us and god actually wants to use us to extend grace and mercy to others all right well we're going to do something a little different here um, in a minute, we are going to uh, break into small groups and this is what, what's gonna happen. Here's the question I'd love for you to think about and reflect. Uh, do you have that, Mark? So here's the question for reflection. What did God stir in your heart? Because the whole point of a sermon is not just to go, what's the distracting hook? What did that say in the Bible? I love the passage. What's something interesting to learn? But what did God stir in my heart? So maybe was there an encouragement? Maybe there was a challenge or maybe there was an invitation. And I think, Why? Of those three things, what did God percolate in you and why? And what's going to happen is after Linda sings a song, we are going to go and get put into small groups. And so if you want to join a small group, there's going to be no introductions. It'll be led by a staff person. And you're going to get an opportunity to share and hear from, and hear from other people as well. And this is an opportunity for you to share what God is doing in you, not what you hope God is doing in Chad Kadoff, which is always my normal starting point. Okay, so no introductions. You're just going to share. Okay, And then at the end, you're going to pray and we're going to come back together. If you do not want to be a part of a small group experience, when you are prompted to go to a small group or breakout room, just hang tough. And then you get about eight or 10 minutes to just be quiet and to pray. And then we'll all come back together. All right, let me pray for us. And then we'll, uh, we'll spend a little time in worship and then our breakout rooms. Heavenly Father, and our gracious God, the running God, the God who overcomes our shame with your own shame, I'm so thankful for your extravagant love, for those of us who are wild and are just burning through our inheritance left and right. And for, your gent- and for your rebuke for us older brothers and sisters who don't know what to do with your graciousness towards people who are not like us. And for your gentle invitation for all of us to be in a deeper and more full and intimate relationship with you, both now and forevermore. We love you, Jesus. Amen and amen.